Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Coming up on today's show, some alarming stats about half of Canadian children needing surgery are waiting longer than recommended to get that surgery. Ukraine wants to be a member of NATO, ASAP. They've been told they're just going to have to wait. And misinformation surrounding the Queen's death. There's all kinds of ridiculous conspiracy theories. This is something to be concerned about. We're going to have a conversation here about surgery in our country. And we've talked a lot about how we know that wait times can be far too long for many, many instances. Uh, We're going to focus primarily here on kids. And kids are waiting far too long to have surgery in this country. Let's go through it. We're going to chat with Emily Grunewald, who is the president and chief executive of the Children's Healthcare Canada, executive director of the Pediatric Chairs of Canada. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time today. Good morning. No problem. Yeah, so taking a look at this, we're looking at like about half of the kids who need surgery in Canada are waiting longer than recommended. Half? Really? Is it that high? Yeah, that's right. So at this point, if we look across Canada's 13 children's hospitals, um, 49.8% are showing that children are waiting beyond window, recommended window um, for treatment, surgical interventions. And this is up quite significantly over the last two years. So pre-pandemic, that number was less than a quarter of children would be waiting longer than recommended. And now we've seen that number uh, over double. Wow. Unreal. And we're talking about, in some cases, some pretty urgent conditions. It's, I mean, obviously, they're not immediate emergency surgeries, but in some cases, they're pretty close. Like, they're urgent situations, right? Yeah, that's right. So the most critically ill children are absolutely receiving the, the, the care that they right. need and the time that's required. But other elective but still essential services are um, bearing the brunt of, of a number of related impacts. So we're seeing emergency departments across the country of our children's hospitals 30 to 50 percent higher in volume. So whether those children are um, presenting with a seasonal virus, with some mental health concerns or, or trauma from a car accident or otherwise, um, the, the impact of that volume of patients is that um, we need to admit the most critically ill children. And at this point, we're admitting those children without bed, which means there isn't capacity in the hospital um, to care for those children immediately. And what we do to create that capacity is we schedule, reschedule those essential surgical interventions. So it's right. those kids that are, that are paying the price, and, and they are now waiting much longer than they ought to, and in some cases, over a year. Yikes. And you talk about paying the price. And you, I mean, obviously, in some cases, it's going to be pain. It's going to be discomfort. But I imagine with kids, especially, you're talking about all kinds of things like development, impact on families. I mean, the fallout from this, I imagine, could be huge, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as children wait, um, their, their condition might be worsening. Um, you know, they might be experiencing discomfort or pain. Their treatment might or their intervention might be more complicated. Um, and their outcomes might not be as uh, positive as they might be had they been treated in window. And to your point, you know, when a child is ill, 
um, it really has a huge impact on the entire family. So we really need to think about those system supports that need to be in place for that child. And the other piece, too, is to think about not only the health outcomes that are suffering, but if you're waiting for surgery, if you're waiting in discomfort or pain, it's really difficult to stay focused in a classroom. It's really difficult yeah. to want to have a play date with your friends or to participate in extracurricular activities. So it really has far-reaching impacts on not only the child, but also their family. Yeah, and I think you're right, especially when you're talking about like some of them in terms of development and early intervention and getting some of these issues addressed very young. Uh, it'll pay off down the road a million different ways. Yeah, we call that uh, we call that pedianomics in children's health. So, what is the the impact of intervening on time and early in a children's uh, life versus what the impact is later? So, okay. looking at health systems utilization, or looking at you know how how does that um, little human grow up to be a big human, and what are their opportunities uh, to work successfully, to have a family, etc. And so, there really is a strong economic argument as well as a moral imperative um, to make sure that we have the resources in our children's healthcare system that we need. So, can we put a finger on why we're so backed up? I know the pandemic, we know the healthcare system right across the country is just uh, under all kinds of pressure. In this specific instance, uh, why are we seeing such a backlog? storm, right? So we have, like I said, just seasonal flus and viruses that are circulating. We've had um, persistent concerns around children's mental health over the course of the pandemic, and many of those children without a primary care provider in their community showing up in an emergency department. Um, the, the typical traumas that children tend to um, encounter over the course of their, their days and weeks, um, all at a time when our health systems are really stretched to their capacity. So we don't have sufficient highly specialized healthcare providers in the numbers that we need in our health system right now. And so we're, we're dealing with high volumes and a shortage of, of workforce um, to care for these kids. And, and the, our frontline healthcare providers who are just so passionate about caring for children are, are being stretched to their limits as well in terms of their ability to deliver services. Um, so what's the fix? What, do you, what would your group or the groups that you're involved in, what are you calling for? So a number of children's health stakeholders across the country are calling on the federal government to make kids a priority. So let's develop a pan-Canadian strategy for children and youth health in this country that sets some very clear targets and metrics for where we hope to be. Um, your listeners might be surprised to learn that right now, Canada's children rank 30th out of 38 international countries with respect to their physical health and 31st out of 38 countries with their mental health. I think we can all agree that that's not good enough. And a wealthy country like Canada, we ought to have better outcomes for our children. So we're really looking at the federal government um, to play a leadership role and to say, you know what, we can and must do better. It's going to take an all-hands-on-deck um, uh, commitment, but this is our future. And so that pan-Canadian plan to look at not only healthier beginnings for our moms and babies, but also how do we improve medicine and precision health for children, the sickest children who are hospitalized, but also those who are suffering from disabilities or chronic diseases. Um, how do we make sure that they can, they can thrive in their own way? Yeah, and it's such, it should be such a priority. It seems obvious. Um, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. That is Emily Grunewald, who is the President and Chief Executive of Children's Healthcare Canada and the Executive Director of Pediatric Chairs of Canada. And, uh, yeah, that's concerning when you're talking about 50% of um, surgeries for children in our country are happening outside of the recommended window. So, in other words, 
doctors say, okay, if this is what we're dealing with, this is the timeline that we should have this addressed by. Anything beyond that is going to be even more detrimental. And we're not hitting that target 50% of the time. Not good. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Continue apace in Ukraine. All kinds of things happening there and in Moscow, we should mention. Um, as uh, as you probably know, uh, Russia has illegally annexed four regions of Ukraine. It's almost a fifth of the entire area of that country. It was part of the referenda that they held last week that most observers say was a complete joke. Um, regardless, we knew it was going to happen. We knew it would go this way. Uh, all of the Western countries saying they will not recognize this by any capacity at all, um, not being taken seriously. One other thing that is being taken seriously, and it's interesting, is Ukraine last week uh, officially requesting admission into NATO and saying they want to fast track that, which I think it makes sense on a lot of levels, right? But at the same time, it really, really does ramp up the risk, I think. So to get some details, we're going to chat with Andrew Rasoulis, who's a defense expert with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Andrew, uh, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time, sir. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Now, so the Ukraine wants in and they want in now. Uh, I can see why it makes sense from their perspective. That kind of alliance would be extremely helpful for Ukraine right now, right? Yes, but it would commit NATO to a war with Russia, right. essentially the Third World War. So, Essentially what would happen you know, is if Ukraine becomes part of NATO, then uh, immediately and as of that moment, NATO is engaged in combat with Russia, right? That's right. Uh, and, and the full war, which means a nuclear... Uh, nuclear guarantees and um, potential for Armageddon. But that question has been put to bed uh, by the United States this weekend uh, when they very quickly actually responded and said that now is not the time. The American open door policy remains uh, for Ukraine and and Georgia and others to join NATO at, at a certain point in time. But now is not the time. The Americans put the emphasis that the important thing is to support Ukraine uh, as we are currently constructed uh, to uh, to uh, in their in their fight against the Russians. And Canada, the same thing. The open door policy they also accept. So, what does that look like? I mean, uh, in terms of that, these these countries that you mentioned, at some point, um, the recommendation is they become part of NATO, right? Yeah, it's it's at some point. Uh, and, and one has to remember that also it takes consensus of all 30 members. So just to remind ourselves that the accession process for Sweden and Finland, which was while the process was approved by the alliance at their NATO summit in June, the actual ratification process is not yet complete, and Turkey continues to, to say that they may not ratify unless they have satisfaction with the Turk, with the uh, the Swedes and the Finns on the handling of the Kurd refugees, which the Turks describe as terrorists. Gotcha. Um, in terms of when this might happen, that timeline, nothing can proceed 
let me put it this way. Even if this incident that is taking place right now is resolved and we allow Ukraine to become part of NATO, isn't the risk infinitely higher that once again we'll end up in another conflict where now Ukraine is engaged in combat with Russia? I mean, Russia's made it pretty clear that the, the future looks like Ukraine is part of Russia, and I don't think they're just going to let that go, do you? Well, uh, no, but but we don't know how this war is going to end yet. Fair. So so the the idea what the Americans are saying is that essentially let let's let's wait till this is over, and then let's see what the world looks like. And I I think that this war has got a few more very important stages to go through before we know how it will end, and we don't know how it will end. We can speculate, but until such time as as we know what the world looks like after this war, and I think it'll look somewhat different, uh, we then can't postulate on what the NATO alliance future structure will be. Gotcha. Okay. Now, in terms of the uh, referenda that were held in the annexation of these regions of Ukraine, um, no legitimacy given to them by the by the West. How did, does it change anything in terms of where we're going with this conflict? The, the actual um, acquisition of the, or annexation of those four oblasts doesn't really change uh, the issue. Uh, what is threatening or possibly to change the issue is the Russian is the Ukrainian advance, particularly in the south now, which happened in the last 24 hours in Kershon. Uh, this advance uh, puts the Ukrainians on the road toward on the land bridge now along the Black Sea to Crimea, and Crimea is the different one. Because the Russians regard, and Putin and so on, they regard the, the four oblasts in eastern Ukraine as Russified Ukrainian right. lands. They yeah. are not so existential. But Crimea, which they annexed in 2014-15, they regard that as wholly different. Um, from a Russian point of view, and the majority of Russians here, not just Putin, this is a vast majority of Russians, believe that historically not necessarily legally by virtue of 1991, but historically this is Russian land by virtue of Catherine the Great taking it from the, 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 the Ottomans in, in, the, in the 18th century. The other point here about Crimea, that it is, why it is such a strategic keystone here, is that the Black Sea Fleet, the Russian Black Sea Fleet, is based at Sevastopol, and the Black Sea Fleet has nuclear weapons. So it is nuclear capable. And this whole question now becomes, you know, Putin has said, I, we will defend Russian territory with all the weapons at our uh, yes. ability. Uh, the, the, in my assessment, this threat of the nuclear potential really relates to Crimea in a realistic sense. So what Putin is trying to do, he's trying to suggest they, they are nuclear capable in it, uh, uh, the fall of Sevastopol in Crimea, from a Russian point of view, could be construed as an existential defeat, and therefore their threat is has carries credibility there. So my postulation is that I don't believe to, uh, that Putin actually wants to use these weapons. He doesn't, mm. but what he wants to use is the threat of these weapons in a credible way to pressure the Ukrainians and to pressure the Americans to pressure the Ukrainians to stop short of Crimea in their offensive operations. This is what I think it's all about. And we'll see, and, and get a ceasefire, basically. And this okay. is where I think things turn. Um, and, and that would be acceptable, because I'm hearing all kinds of different analysts saying, well, Putin will not accept defeat. He will go down having deployed every option he has available, because it's the end of the road for him if he doesn't win this. Uh, you think there is still an off-ramp here? I believe there is, um, because don't forget, Putin has to deal with a number of factions back in Russia as well. 
and not everybody is 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 on board with this crusade yeah. in the in the in the, in Ukraine. And basically, there there are splits occurring in the Russian elites right now about this whole thing. And I think a ceasefire arrangement uh, would be acceptable. It, uh, it, it, it could be spun as a kind of a pseudo victory for him. I mean, he needs some face saving uh, room to maneuver. Totally. He's not going to get all of Ukraine. He's not going to get the Oblast right now. Uh, and he knows that. So he's looking for I think he is looking for an off ramp. And he, and that would be acceptable, even though he's made no gains then. He would maintain Crimea uh, and, yeah. and, and would go back home, but he wouldn't have actually changed anything that was in place, you know, in January of this year. There would be a lot of spin going on. Yeah. Uh, now, the, the other thing is that that ceasefire may not necessarily... That question is, in the other parts, how far will the Ukrainians uh, advance against the Russian positions? Will they advance to where they were before February? Um, you know, that's a postulation. There's a probability. I mean, the Russians are not doing well on the battlefield. That is clear now to everybody along the entire front. So, yes, I mean, I think it's a question of spin. Yeah, but yeah. They, they need an off-ramp. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, always a great discussion. Thank you so much for joining us, Andrew. I appreciate it. You're very welcome, Shane. That is Andrew Rasoulis, who is a defense expert with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. He's been a frequent commenter here on the show for us, uh, talking about this situation. Wealth of knowledge. Shortly after the death of Queen Elizabeth, we talked a bit about the misinformation and the conspiracy theories that sprung up following that. All kinds of silliness. If you remember, um, for example, the UK had cancelled all funerals. The Queen was the only one that was going to be buried on that day. Not true, of course. Um, And then, of course, there was all the greatest hits of the misinformation crowd that come up all the time. Um, QAnon got in on the action. They always do never miss a chance. Um, A lot of people said she was killed by the vaccine. Uh, There's a lot of people that say the Queen had been dead for a very, very long time anyway. She'd... um, She passed away years ago. There's been a whole bunch of conspiracy theories around that, saying that she had died several times. So um, it happens every time, right? That's the world that we live in now. But why is that? And what does it do to us? Let's find out. We're going to chat with Samuel Routley, who's a PhD student in political science at Western University. Samuel, thanks for joining us. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, when we take a look at this, the fact that the same themes come up every time, right? I mean, it's the same sort of whenever there's a major news event, the conspiracy theorists get going, get active, and come up with uh, all kinds of alternate realities that they start selling. That should tell us something. They'll never miss an opportunity, right? If there's a major story, there's going to be alternative realities around it. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Um, Because when, when you're talking about something like the monarchy, which is an institution that large and, and predominant, I think that there's, you know, there's always, there'll always be a set of interests um, that are interested and can gain, can, can gain from that sort yeah. of, that confusion uh, that, that, that mis- misinformation can, can generate. Hey, and we'll get to what the gain might be in just a minute. First, though, as you say, conspiracy theories, especially surrounding the royal family, are, are nothing new. When you're talking about an entity entity that big um, and that well-known, you're going to have all kinds of conspiracy theories. And they've been around for a long time, right? Like, why does the monarchy lend itself to this kind of thing? I, I think it's simply the, um, it's, it's two things. It's, it's the monarchy's incredibly high stature. Um, it's standing, whether that's in the whether that's including in the British system of government, uh, in the Commonwealth, but also publicly, and also the fact that the 
because the because the monarchy kind of has to maintain this this neutral position, it kind of has to stay above the fray of of day to day politics and day to day contentions. Uh, it 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 kind of keeps things hidden. It's it's secretive yeah. in a way. It's built in, so, yeah. Which, which can kind of generate this 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 sense of suspicion that that can that can make people susceptible to these kind of conspiracy theories. You know, and we are. We know there's a segment of the population that's very susceptible to this. The question, are, are we not getting any better, Samuel? I mean, we know, we've talked about this so much since the advent of social media, and, and we know there's so much misinformation flying around. Are we not getting any better at spotting it? Yeah, I mean, what, what the research shows um, is that what, what's really changed is the, the rate, uh, the speed of the misinformation. So misinformation and conspiracy theorizing have always been problems that we've had, yep. and it seems like they'll always continue to be problems uh, simply just because that's the way, um, you know, communication works. Um, you know, either whether or not people, you have to consider the fact that people are often misinformed, uh, lack understanding of things, and also the fact that, that there's there's always interest. Um, somebody always gains uh, from from, from, like I said, the sort of confusion that it generates. But, but what's different now, it seems like, given since like the advent of, of the Internet and social media, it's, it's the speed Yeah, uh, that's really changed, and perhaps that's what's more uh, ominous, and, and that's what's much more pressing. When you say, you know, that people will seek to gain from these kinds of conspiracy theories, how? What do they gain by doing this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's... It, it, what, what's happened with the monarchy so far is you could see that uh, a lot of the political movements that have been going on for the last couple of years, they're all trying to get an advantage. So, for example, I mean, um, kind of anti-COVID movements, anti-vaccine movements, they, they kind of tried to generate this, this conspiracy theory that, that the vaccine, for example, was what killed the queen. Yeah, And that's a way to advance, to legitimize uh, their their policy goals. Um, another factor might be that there are certain political actors uh, who are trying to gain um, political momentum, who are trying to get advantages, and, and they do that by by sowing this sense of discord, this this sense of confusion, so that they can kind of come in as that agent of of order. Um, you know that they they create a kind of fake. A, a manufactured sense of chaos, and they kind of come as that 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 order. And then the third is is in this particular case is a set of interests that are interested in seeing the the monarchy itself kind of diminished. Um, when we I, okay, so yeah, you're right, diminishing the monarchy. And we know that's going to be a topic of discussion in a number of different countries. But what does it do to us in general, in terms of society, uh, democratic institutions, all these sorts of things? When we're bombarded by this, and uh, we know that it does work in a lot of instances, what does it do to um, you know society in general, and and the way we feel about institutions like the monarchy or democracy or whatever the case may be? Yeah, the, the monarchy is interesting because it. Um, a lot of a lot of people had this real um, personal effective um, attachment to the queen, and I think this kind of introduction of a lot of um, I, you, you could say kind of distasteful uh, misinformation has, has actually kind of led to this, this genuine state of of uh, uh, of uh, 
this discontent, I mean, of 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 this genuine uh, angst of of uh, anxiety in a sense mm-hmm. um, that they feel like they've they feel like they've lost this 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 loved one, right? They feel like as if, despite the fact that they they have no real personal connection, they feel almost as if the queen was a was a grandmother or a mother. Um, but in terms more generally, I mean, like I said before, it's it's it creates a sense of, uh, of just instability of, of a sense of contamination that, that, that the air, uh, that information out there isn't totally safe or reliable. And it, it creates a sense of, especially when we're talking about democratic institution, it, it creates this real sense of distrust and, and cynicism, right? That, yes. that we can't, we can't trust each other. Uh, we can't trust the sort of institutions and, and, and recently, that's been used by by political actors. Sure. Most of them, most of them, uh, negative, right? Most of them not with the best intentions to kind of wedge in uh, and and take advantage of those situations. Absolutely, yep. Um, Samuel, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. You bet, Samuel Routley, who is a PhD student in political science, Western University. He's right. That's what it comes down to, right? Is you can when you see that distrust being pushed like when that's when that's the main focus of someone that you're listening to it, when they start whatever they're about to tell you with you can't believe what you're hearing and seeing from here there or anywhere else just believe me um that's should be a red flag that okay um there's a reason that first you have to break down trust in everybody else and say i'm the one you should trust right Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.